seated. We find ourselves in the season of gardening. The warm summer months allow us to plant flowers and all sorts of flora. And then there is this exquisite delight. You plant a tiny seed in the earth. It sprouts, you tend it, and then you eat the produce. All in the same summer. It's an amazing thing. I can almost get giddy still about the wonder of it. This little seed in the ground and you eat the food that comes from it. There's some things you do in that and there's some things you absolutely cannot do in this wonder. But there's an even greater delight, I think, in the longer term, higher yield of fruit trees. You plant a row of lettuce. You harvest the leaves for a few weeks in the summer. You try to pretend you're not a rabbit. And that's kind of the end of it. it just, it's over. Those, that plant doesn't produce any longer than just that one summer. But you plant, let's say, a peach tree. It takes a long time to see your first peach. And the first time that a peach comes out, there might be two or three on this young tree. But you tend that tree year after year in the hope that one day it will produce succulent fruit season after season after season. The process is longer, the process is riskier, but then you see that first peach and you are inspired to tend the tree with even greater care. And what happens if insects attack the tree? You get busy. You respond with special attention, with special concern, because you don't want this tree to die. The life of that tree is somewhat in your hands, but not mostly. There are things you can do, but you work and you wait. And you work some more, hoping that this tree will realize the Creator's design and yield delectable fruit. It's with similar anticipation and hope and concern. Like one raising a fruit tree that the Apostle Paul tends the churches in his orbit of influence. There's work that he does. He works himself indeed, he says, to exhaustion in caring for the churches, in pleading that God would work, in writing to them and thinking about them, and yet... There's some things you can't do as a human being. You must just trust the Lord. We find Paul with that type of keen anticipation, seeking evidences of life, delighting to identify spiritual fruit in these churches, fruit that only God can produce, something that only God can do. And he looked for it. And what did he do when false teaching came in and threatened the life of these churches? With great anticipation, with great anxiety even, he labored to declare the truth of God, trusting that it would counter the false doctrine and that it would spare the churches from falling away from the living God. Paul labored with concern, with passion for the prosperity of these believers. And that is Paul's agenda as we come to his letter to the church at Colossae. And if you'll make your way there, we begin a series today through this book 
just here in these summer months as we work our way through uh, these uh, few weeks, we want to look at this book with care. We have considered passages from it through the years, but never a series through on Sunday mornings, and we want to do that here this morning and begin it this morning. You can locate a map, perhaps, or this may help for those that can see it. Uh, but there is a couple of uh, several key cities here on this map. The first is Rome. You notice that in the far left upper corner. And then there is Ephesus, about the middle of the map. And then just to the right, to the east, is Colossae. And then, of course, down in the right lower corner is Jerusalem. Those will be the key places to keep in mind as we work our way through this book. The apostle writes from prison and most likely in Rome. He writes to a body of believers there at the city of Colossae whom he has never met. Yet this church was almost certainly started as the gospel spread from Ephesus where Paul was stationed, and the story is told for us in Acts chapter 19 and on into 20 as he speaks to the Ephesian elders. But he had a lengthy, significant ministry there at Ephesus, and from Ephesus the gospel spread out to that area. And it's undoubtedly during this time that the gospel reaches these Colossians. There's a key person along with Paul, and of course again he's writing to to individuals he's not met in person, but Epaphras, Epaphras is a trusted member of Paul's evangelistic team, and he preached the gospel faithfully among the Colossians. And now Epaphras reports to Paul that the Colossian believers, here it is, they're bearing fruit. They are bearing fruit. They are showing the evidences of spiritual life. He also delivers the concerning news that false teachers had begun to influence the church away from seeing their union with Jesus Christ as sufficient for salvation. It needed to be Jesus plus something else. And so Paul writes with great concern. We would work through this section here that we begin with today in chapter 1. Let me just give you a brief overview. Paul is responding to the situation with a mixture of fatherly concern and rejoicing. So on the one hand, he is troubled by the influence of the false teachers and he labors to combat their teaching in this book. But the book begins with Paul rejoicing at the evidences of genuine faith in Christ in their lives. And that's where we begin here in chapter 1. In verses 1 and 2 there is a greeting, as is so common, in these letters. And then in verses 3 through 8, we see there the rejoicing in the evidences of spiritual life. Followed by verse 9, and following through to verse 14, Paul labors in prayer, contending with God to increase the productivity and the vibrancy of this new life. So verses 3 through 8, it's there. They're alive. There's evidences of their life. And verses 9 and following, God Bring it to fulfillment. Produce more and more fruit in the lives of these believers. So the greeting we read in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father. This could take a month of sermons in itself, these introductions of Paul, but we, saw, we find significantly here just a few highlights, and that is that he is an apostle. How do you become an apostle? You say, you know, I don't, of all the career paths, I think maybe that's the one for me. I'll, I'll, I'll hang out a shingle and see if anybody listens to what I have to say. I think apostle might be the thing that I want to do. It's not how it works, is it? You don't pursue the office of apostle. The office of an apostolic representative of Jesus Christ, one who spoke with Christ's authority, that was an office for which only a select few were chosen. And for this reason, we trust this letter to be God's true and revealed word. He was, by the calling of God, an apostle, and speaks with that authority. This, does, this book does not come across as you might want to think about this as you compare the different opinions of religious teachers. It comes across rather that Paul, the apostle with authority, speaks for Christ and points these followers of Christ to embrace Him fully, to trust Him completely. He writes with Timothy, the church probably knew him or at least knew his name and it lends additional support. Uh, he is, the, in, in a sense, the second uh, leader of Paul's evangelistic team. And to these Colossians whom he describes in three ways. They are saints. What does that mean? That is holy ones. Individuals set apart by God in distinction from the world, called out from that world to be Christ's people. They are faithful brothers, that is, members of God's family who remain loyal to Christ, and they are in Christ. Their new identity in Christ is a major theme of this book. And Paul will continue to bring emphasis back to their relationship with the Lord. This is who they are, and to them he says grace and peace, which is a standard greeting, but the very foundation on which everything exists. So Paul now rejoices with heartfelt thanksgiving to God for the Colossians' genuine reception of the gospel. Put him in your mind in, in prison. He's hearing this truth. It takes a long time to get the messages back and forth. But he's hearing this truth that they have responded to the gospel. And with joy he writes these words, We always thank God, verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's consistently thanking God for the Colossians. When Epaphras reported that the Colossians had repented, that they had trusted Christ as their Savior, Paul's heart fills with joy. From the moment he received evidence of their spiritual transformation, he thanked God for accomplishing what only God could do. I picture it in the analogy of this particular sermon. Like going out on that first spring day to that peach tree and seeing a bud. It's alive. It made it through the winter. It has been brought to life. And Paul is thrilled. We can plant seeds. Paul knew that. He planted many gospel seeds. We can water those seeds. He knew that. He labored by writing and speaking 
and proclaiming and teaching in public and privately. He knew you could water the seed. But Paul also knew that only God can give the increase. Only God can really make that tree grow. You can do all these things as a gardener, but you can't make life. So we sense the true joy that he has since the day we heard of your faith. Verse 4, and of the love that you have for all the saints. The faith in Christ, when genuine, is always accompanied by this next evidence for which Paul gives thanks. This love is not a sentimental love, not one you fall into. This is a self-sacrificing love for others that you choose. You choose to so bless those whom Jesus has chosen to bless and rescue. Such love is an evidence of true belief. This faith in Christ and love for other believers is because of, you notice there verse 5, it's because of, or maybe we could say it is motivated by the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is what drives it. Those who live without hope of eternity have nothing to live for. They have nothing to live for but their own gut, their own self-centered schemes, their own selfish lusts. It is all about this world. But for believers, there is a hope safely stored up for us in heaven. It awaits us there. It is eternity with Christ. It is freedom from sin. It is freedom from the curse. It is that day when death itself will be gone. And we will live in the presence of the Lord. What does such hope produce? When you really have that kind of hope in eternity, what is the result? It's a new identity rooted in Christ. You see yourself identified with Him. It is also a selfless orientation then motivating us to serve others in love. It means this. No one on this planet is less earthly good than one who is not heavenly minded. And the other should be, the opposite should be so much the case that those who are most heavenly minded, who have their hopes set in eternity, will be the most earthly good. C.S. Lewis said this so memorably, because we love something else more than this world, we love even this world better than those who know no other. We have a knowledge of a world to come and it transforms the way that we think about this world. It is seen every day in the way that we live in the purposes of our life. And Paul thrills with the fact that he's seeing this in their lives. As verse 5 continues, of this, that is, this message of hope, of this message you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ crucified and risen. You have heard this message in that gospel. The message of salvation in Jesus crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins always travels. It's always on mission. It's always moving places. It arrives the gospel comes to us. 
It finds us in our spiritual darkness. Indeed, it is carried to us by evangelists. The gospel is seed that springs into life and bears fruit with a yield that continues to increase. And so you heard of this truth of the gospel. Verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. The day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Let me ask you directly, individually, has that day come for you? That day when you knew that you heard the gospel for the first time. Now, many, and this is right and good, have grown up within a Christian context and heard the gospel from infancy, from before the words made any sense. But do you have some recognition that there was a time, a period of time in your life where you heard the old familiar message for the first time? That it detonated in your soul, that it showed itself to be a message of rescue and life and the grace of God. For these first generation believers, this was easy to identify when perhaps Epaphras, perhaps others along with him came with that gospel and proclaimed that truth to them. They remember the day it was brought to them, the day that it arrived and was proclaimed. Do you remember that? Colossians heard that message and it radically changed them. Here's Paul. He, he didn't himself proclaim that message to them, but he knows this is a work of the risen Christ. This isn't a work of the Apostle Paul. Paul's involved in the mission, he's part of the work. But this is a work of the risen Christ. And so what he did in Ephesus that I was very much a part of, I know he's done in Colossae with you. I know exactly what it looks like. I know the marks of the Spirit of God. doesn't matter the culture, doesn't matter the city, doesn't matter where it is on this earth. I know the marks. You remember that day that the gospel reached you? You learned it, verse 7, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, then again, here, almost certainly the one who brought the message to them at first. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. There it is again. The message came to you from Epaphras. He has brought the report to me that you are alive. So the elements are all there and they show themselves in this church. They've shown themselves throughout history across the Cultural divides and language divides. The gospel message. The proclamation of evangelists who takes that message. A response of repentant faith. And then the fruit. Love in the Spirit. The Spirit of God producing love for the people of God who all are identified with the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing wonder. It's life that you can't make happen. It's a work of the risen Christ. So Paul rejoices and he praises God for evidences of fruit in the life of the Colossians. And what do you do? What do you do when there is a fruit tree you long to see grow? 
and you inspect it in the spring of the year and find that it is indeed alive and there's fruit hanging from it that is going to develop, what do you do? You rejoice, you're thankful, but the other thing you do is you get to work. You get to work nurturing that life. You get to work in the hope that there will be a great harvest to come. And that's exactly what Paul does here. That's the next section, beginning at verse 9. We find now fervent intercession for the Colossians, continuing spiritual growth. This is what he longs for and desires that they will continue to grow. Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He just never gives up. The life is there. What does he say? It's not, well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. I'm moving on to other people. No, he goes to work and prays fervently that they will grow and mature. The fertilizer that feeds the spiritual growth of believers is the capacity to discern what God wants. You see that there in verse 9. I've not ceased praying. I'm asking, I'm pleading with God that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Learning to think biblically, understand, or developing capacities to discern what pleases the Lord in belief, in word, in attitude, in deed, this feeds spiritual growth. Not, I have my ideas. I want to press those ideas and I'm going to look to Christ for support. I'm going to look to the Bible to see if it defends what I think. Not that, but a humble turning to God and saying, what is your will? What do you desire of your people? That's the, the fertilizer of growth. It feeds spiritual growth to discern the will of the Lord. Well, not entirely. We must learn to comprehend what God wants and then to want the same thing. It's not enough to simply know what He wants, but we must then want the same thing. Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To know the Word of the Lord so that we would walk in a manner that is pleasing to Him. The intended result of knowledge of God's will is to produce godly lives. So we see this imbalance that we must always be fighting. The believer who packs his head with biblical truths. But his knowledge does not change the way that he relates to his family. If you would watch him at work for a week, you'd never know he was a believer. If you would look at his finances, there's no indication he's a follower of Christ. He's just a worshiper of money, but he knows all kinds of theology. That's the imbalance on the one side. On the other side, the believer who busies herself with deeds of service to others, but has little interest to keep learning God's truth. She got the ABCs back in Sunday school in third grade and she really doesn't care to know any more about what God is saying. To learn the Bible any better or to grow in the truth. The imbalance on both sides. Paul pleads that God would bring these two ideas together. That there would be a passion to learn the will of the Lord. And that there would be a follow through to do what God has commanded us to do. 
Paul pleads that God will enable the Colossians to know His will and to live in response. And I just wonder on a simple question, do you live, do I live for the purpose of pleasing God? There are many people who would look at that as silly, as religious addiction, as a sort of weird, subservient way of living our life like a doormat to always be attending to the will of God and doing that. And what do we say as the followers of Christ? That's my life. That's my hope. That's my joy. To get up every day and to say, I want to live this day to please the Lord. That links us to a greater source of strength and power and joy than to lock into the little inner self and say, I am going to live this day to please me. We all do it. I do it every day. But as the followers of Christ, we know, as we've been singing here earlier this morning, I've been liberated from that. I've been set free from that sin to live simply for self. We live now for the purpose of pleasing the Lord who made us, who is our Savior and our strength. What a joy. And that's an amazing prospect, isn't it? I can live in a way that pleases God. The God of the universe is in fact pleased. It's an amazing prospect. And it needs to be an active goal in our lives, something that we highly value to live this day in a way that pleases the Lord. The worthy walk we find here at verse 10, about the middle of the verse, is now going to be broken up with four participles in the Greek text that don't hit us quite that way here in the English. But the worthy walk is modified with four participles. The first is bearing fruit in every good work. You notice that there in verse 10. Fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work. That's the first idea. Not in some good works, but in every good deed. Paul pleads that the Spirit's fruit would be in abundant evidence in the lives of these believers. Not as the root of our sanctification, its source, but as the fruit of our life in Christ. The second phrase we find next there in verse 10, bearing fruit, pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, Secondly, increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, it would seem somewhat redundant to pray that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of God so that they can increase in the knowledge of God. Now, that's not a problem, that concept, but it would seem a little redundant. So I think the idea here of increasing in the knowledge of God is increasing in intimacy with God, in a knowledge of who He is. The third phrase we find in verse 11, may you be strengthened, or in the original, being strengthened with all of God's power according to His glorious might. And so our third idea, being strengthened by God's power, that there would be a work of God within me that brings conviction and change and strength to do the right thing in times where that's not easy. God must empower us for discernment and for good deeds. And what is the outcome when He so empowers us? What do we do? Perform signs and miracles and wonders? No, notice what it is. It's amazing to us. He strengthens us with all the power of the divine, verse 11, 
for all endurance and patience with joy. That's the kind of strengthening that God will typically do in the life of one who is leaning upon His power. When God empowers His children, He strengthens us with what is outside of our capacities. The ability to endure. The ability to have fortitude in the midst of trials and difficulties. The ability to persevere, to bear up well under trials, to be long-suffering and patient, not retaliatory or escapist. Not retaliatory or escapist. Those two ideas are in us. They're in our DNA as the children of Adam. To run away or to retaliate. As they say, fight or flight. It's in all of us. The power of God prepares us to endure, to persevere, not to run when we should stay, and not to fight when we feel like it. The fourth participle that modifies this worthy walk that pleases the Lord is found in verse 12, giving thanks Giving thanks to the Father. One of the evidences that we are growing in Christ is that we are increasingly awed by the wonder of God's saving grace. It's in our heritage, isn't it? Think of Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You know the thing to consider about that hymn is it's all intense. Everything in its intense. I mean, imagine what great song this would be. Somewhat interesting is your grace. How okay the sound that aided a most decent person like me. I once found my own way to God, having a little less than 20-20 vision, but now with the right prescription, I see. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. It is sweet to the sound. It saved a wretch who was blind. But now we see. Paul lays out a few concepts in which we should find increasing reason to sing like this, to think like this. He says in verse 12 that we give thanks because He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Or we could say He has qualified us, it's the same. He's qualified believers to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You've not qualified yourself to inherit eternity. He has fitted us by His grace alone to inherit heaven's light. That light of the age to come has already dawned, but we point our lives toward its source, toward that light until we enter it in fullness. Said another way, verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The domain of darkness. That is, we are born by nature 
into this realm of spiritual gloom and doom. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. And some would object here and say, well, that's a little dramatic, isn't it? Yeah, so is amazing grace, how sweet the sound has saved a wretch like me. It is a bit dramatic, but it's biblical. It's what the Word of God teaches us. We are born into this spiritual darkness. And the fact that you may think we're not might be evidence that you're still in it. You don't see it. That you're as blind as a bat when it comes to seeing the glories of Jesus Christ. The redeemed rejoice. That's what they do. They rejoice at being delivered because they have come to know that they have been transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. They have a sense that I was in darkness. I was in that domain and I'm not there anymore. By grace, I have been liberated and I have been translated into the eternal realm. I'm as good as there. And I'm on my way. This transfer will not be fully realized until we see Christ, but in a real sense, we occupy that kingdom now. We are its true citizens. We have been marked by Christ. In whom, verse 14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption. That is the forgiveness of sins. So after greeting them, he then in verses 3 through 8 rejoices with thanksgiving, the evidences of fruit in their life, and then he begins to nurture and tend the tree, praying, pleading with God to do this work in them to greater fullness, to continue to bear more and more fruit. I have just three questions I'd like to pose to us this morning as we consider this beautiful text and this beautiful communication between a man in prison and these believers so far away that he's never met. But I think we have to ask the question, do we genuinely rejoice to hear stories of salvation, of the salvation of sinners? Do we really genuinely rejoice? Do we rejoice in the triumph of the gospel? Is this something that's wonderful to us? I can put a seed in the ground and eat the food from it, and that amazes me. How much more when Christ puts a seed in the soul of a one born in darkness, and they come to light and trust and salvation. One of the evidences that we indeed are responding is in this way is that we have a keen interest in worldwide evangelism. For a long time, I thought the keen interest in worldwide evangelism was just people who had a bent toward business progress. And I couldn't quite understand why they get all worked up about what's happening here and there, and they, they may just must have some sort of idea of, of just the growth of the Christian church in a generic sense. But no, this is what's at the root of it, that we come to love the effects of the gospel in the lives of unbelievers. We see it as an evidence of the risen Christ calling out a people for His name, and we want that message to go into all the world. We want Christ to be proclaimed for who He is. One of the evidences that we are truly rejoicing in these stories is that we have a keen interest in those who come to faith within the context of this church as well. 
And we watch over their spiritual prosperity with devoted interest. If you haven't noticed, I hope that you will, but many of us recognize there's a lot of tilling and a lot of tending, a lot of fertilizing and watering that goes on in this assembly all the time. Seeking to bring to fruition the fruit that Christ would produce. Another evidence that we truly are so rejoicing is prayers of thanksgiving to God. Prayers for others. We're really good at certain kinds of prayers, but do we pray for the growth of others? And that leads to the second question. Do we pray fervently for one another's growth in spiritual discernment and godly living? Put those two ideas together, grab onto them, and let's put this into practice. The first, that we would be discerning what God thinks. I, I, I don't know about you, I, I pray this prayer all the time, I don't know what you think. I don't know what you think about this. But I want to know. I want to be faithful. We can't always discern the mind of God, but do we have a desire for it? And then on the other side, to live it out. To live faithfully. Let's pray that for one another. That we discern the will of God, we know what He wants, and then we want what He wants. And so we put it into practice in our lives. It amazes me how obvious this is and what a remarkable lack of discipline we show in praying for one another's spiritual growth. If you want to argue against that later with me, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to have a long line that you're saying, I'm a very excellent prayer for the other members of this church. We're, we're slogging along, we're, we're trying, but it's amazing how little discipline we really have to tend and to nurture the spiritual growth of one another. We do a lot better in supporting one another when there's some problem. Somebody's ill. Somebody's lost their job. Somebody's facing a difficult situation. But do we pray for fruit in the lives of the members of this church? Do we really go to work before God and plead with Him, do this? Bring about this fruit. Teach your church to discern the truth and help them to live it faithfully. Are the children, are the families, are the single adults, are those who have lost a mate, are they surrounded in prayers that God would produce rich spiritual fruit in their lives? Let's give ourselves to it. Do we pray for fruit in the lives of the members of this church? And when we pray for the growth of the members of this body, do we pray like this? We pray like this. Well, it's one of the purposes of our gathering with the, particularly the adults and in the summer with all of us here on Wednesday nights. It's a small attempt, but I think a significant attempt that we should recognize as we have pictures of people in the church on a sheet of paper and it's handed to a group of people who pray for those six, eight family units, whatever. 
It's a way of going to prayer for one another in this assembly as an assembly, which of course should be happening privately. But I would appeal to us who are given to that discipline of prayer, do we come with this kind of intensity? Maybe it would be better that we have more open Bibles and are working off the cheat sheet that Paul gives us here and are turning to Colossians 1 and using these words as we pray for one another. And what Wednesday night is is intended to just guide us into spiritual discipline, but take that home. Take that directory home. Maybe it wouldn't be a bad thing if we put on it prayer directory. Uh, we probably shouldn't because it's more than that. But it, would, it certainly can serve that way well. Pray for the members of your assembly. These are the people you know. These are the people you're walking with in fellowship. May we give ourselves with intensity to pray these kinds of prayers for one another. What would God be pleased to do? Maybe it's one family per day. Could you do that? Somebody here I'm talking to, you don't pray for this church. You just pray generically. You don't pray for individuals. You're not praying that God would help them to walk worthily in a way that pleases Him, bearing fruit. You don't pray that. Can you take one family unit or single a day and just develop the discipline of praying for one per day? Or perhaps one page of the directory per day or per week. Set it out the way that it works for you, but we're, there, there, there must be some level of discipline. And beyond that, of course, as God brings to mind the success of the gospel in other nations, in other places, that we would ever be praying and seeking that God's people would grow. Question three. Are we growing in our ability to discern what pleases our Heavenly Father and do we want what He wants? That's taking the prayers and linking them now to a personal question of do I want what God wants? Do I see these things in my life? Am I pleading for them? They might have disappeared for life and eternity, I don't know. But anyway, you got the four. Do I see them? Do I see them? Finally, do we recognize the wonder of the risen Christ's ongoing conquest? Are we aware of it? Is your life integrated with the increasing growth of the gospel as Jesus redeems lost souls, as He transfers them from the realm of darkness to light? For those who know Christ as Savior, this passage is a reality check for us. The world is approaching us every day trying to draw us into small things. The things that don't really matter to small issues that will occupy us and take away our focus. Let's remember to look up and to look long at what the risen Christ is doing in this world as He pulls people together into churches, as He saves them and redeems them equally, similarly, of the same nature across cultures and languages with different people and places. Let's integrate with that. And for those who do not yet know Christ as Savior, that going back, no intention to be offensive, but going back earlier in this message to saying perhaps you're lost in darkness, and the fact that you don't 
rejoice in being delivered into the realm of Christ's light is because you've never seen it. That's not meant to be offensive. It is meant to arrest your attention. And for you to stop and to think, have I entered into this story? Has the traveling message reached me through someone who proclaimed Jesus crucified and risen and I saw that I was a wretch, that I was lost in sin, that I wasn't just needing a prescription, I was blind. This is the joy that we sing of, but now I see we as a church cannot give you that life. The seed, however, is being planted here this morning. You're listening to it. You're understanding that Christ is risen. That He is calling out a people from the nations to become part of His body. To rescue them from their sins. Or as we have read here, to deliver them from the domain of darkness. This One in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He saved these Colossian believers that way. They were a really unlikely group that would respond to this, but they did. And right now, perhaps the Spirit of God is calling to you to respond to this message. We can't give you that life, but we can point you to the source of it. The seed has been planted. It has been watered here, even in the service. Will you respond? coming out of the darkness and entering into the light of Christ. We'd love to help you with that. And may we as a church continue to give ourselves to the growth of Christ's people. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we need to pray. Again, we must pray. Only you can produce life. And I ask that we would rejoice where we see it, we plead with you to continue to produce fruit in this congregation. And we pray, Father, for those who know not Christ as Savior among us here today in our neighborhoods, across the state and this nation, and throughout the world. We plead that the gospel would increase and bear fruit. When we think of the Colossians, we see in this ancient church, that you were doing then exactly what you're doing now in our midst. That this gospel stands, it's being delivered, people are repenting and trusting and changing. We praise you, we're awed. And we ask God that you will continue in this congregation and in the lives of your people throughout the world to continue to produce fruit that we would walk worthy of you in a way that is pleasing. May we take this message to heart in a world that says everything opposite. And I pray that we would hold it and that even now would be the roots would be stimulated to pursue this life together as your followers. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please stand with me and for a few moments in silence, let's reflect in the quietness of our own heart upon God's word preached to us today.